Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So a warm welcome to guests at the fifth Walter Stibbs Lecture. Some of you will remember past lectures. We've had wonderful presentations. You remember from David Reitzer of the LIGO Project, Andrea Gertz of the Galactic Center Project, Natalia Battaglia of the Kepler Satellite, and Mario Livio talking about space and philosophy and all things to do with astrophysics. And of course, today we have Brian Schmidt, our most illustrious of the five speakers to date. We're very proud of him, of course. And this is an event supported by Sydney Ideas. Now, the acknowledgement to country will be delivered by Brian. Brian specifically asked to give that. The format of this evening is a lecture, uh, followed by ample time to ask questions. I think it makes sense, given what we've seen in the past, not to ask questions during his lecture, unless it's a burning issue, uh, because of the difficulty of getting microphones to you, somewhat disruptive. So after the lecture is much easier time um, to ask those questions. You'll have plenty of time. We get like 25 questions or something, or more. This series, the Walter Stibbs Lecture Series, is made possible by a generous donation to the School of Physics, specifically the Sydney Institute for Astronomy, where I'm director, from Margaret Stibbs, in memory of her husband, to acknowledge a family association with the University of Sydney, which goes back to the 1880s. It's a pleasure to have Helen Stibbs in the front row, Margaret's daughter here tonight. Professor Walter Stibbs was a distinguished international researcher, best known for his contributions to stellar astrophysics. I was observing today that one of his papers from 1950 is up in the 300, 400 citations going up exponentially every year on magnetic variable stars. He is well known for his scientific leadership, his outstanding record of mentoring students, and young researchers. I also remember a keen marathon runner. He traveled the world, uh, making sure his conferences aligned with marathons, <laughs> which is entirely honorable and legal to do so. <laughs> now, our illustrious speaker tonight. Brian Schmidt is a national icon, an international icon even, raised in Montana, and also Alaska, I almost want to say by wolves. So this always sounds like mountain man stuff when you introduce Brian. In 1993, his PhD from Harvard. In 1994, he came to the ANU. His most famous work, his Nobel Prize winning work, was conducted here in Australia. People often forget that. In 1998, there was this sensational discovery that the universe wasn't just expanding, it was also accelerating and some of that work you'll hear tonight. In 2011, Brian was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, a tremendous honor. I heard him being interviewed, and he said his greatest honor, actually, was to be the top physicist winemaker of the year um, <laughs> in nature some years ago. I think he told Margaret Throsby that, I think. And he is, the, I believe, still the only Nobel laureate with a recognized vintage the Maipenrai Pinot, and only yesterday he advertised that bottles were going on sale. So I thought I'd mention that. 
Thank you, Brian. That's worthy of a couple of free bottles, I think. So, um, it's expensive wine, so you might want to check. Like Brian, everything's expensive about Brian. He's now Vice Chancellor of the ANU, and I would say he's the guardian of Australian astronomy, and so much more. His causes are well known, and we may even hear a little bit about that tonight. So I was thinking how to encompass what Brian stands for, and I think the following story captures him beautifully. In 2011, when he was awarded the Nobel Prize, there was tremendous fanfare, not just in our papers, but international papers. I can't tell you how many people I heard from overseas about Brian's enormous achievement. There's a story about what happened the following day. An 11-year-old schoolboy woke at 6 a.m. to prepare a show-and-tell for his class. Without telling his parents, he found Brian's details online. He identified himself as a person who had to give a talk later that day. He emailed Brian four simple questions, things like, how did you know you want to do science? How did you become an astronomer? And so on. Within 30 minutes, this was the morning after his Nobel announcement, an international fanfare, Brian responded with four wonderful answers. The boy cut and pasted these answers into PowerPoint, <laughs> delivered and stuck a medal up to one side of his first slide, and delivered that talk a few hours later, not far from here, at a school in Sydney. The teacher, I'm not making this up, the teacher said to the boy, that's an excellent example of how to write a fictional interview. <laughs> the boy began to protest. The teacher said, sit down. It's just not possible that someone so famous could have responded so quickly. But you get top marks for answers that show great maturity and wisdom. <laughs> that 18-year-old boy is here tonight. He's 11 then, now he's 18. I've never forgotten one of the answers that Brian gave. It really is quite something. This 11-year-old asked the following question. What advice would you give for a young person who doesn't know what to do with their life? <laughs> From an 11-year-old. Brian's response, if all else fails, what do you really enjoy doing? What would you do for free? Fantastic response. I cannot think of a finer accolade to recognize Brian's kindness, his generosity, giving away so much of his prize money, for example, his decency and his humility. He is hugely respected on the international scene and greatly admired for his basic humanity. I give you Professor Brian Schmidt. All right, so before I uh, begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and it is a great place that we may share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices uh, here at the university. And in doing so, we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. Tonight, it is a great honor for me to give this uh, lecture uh, in honor of Walter Stibbs, 
Uh, Walter is someone who I actually knew uh, quite well. He worked for uh, a lot of his life, and especially the latter part of his years, and he came up every day to Mount Stromlo Observatory, he and Margaret. Uh, and uh, I remember as a person well into his 80s, him coming back and show, him showing me his time in the Boston Marathon, uh, which was a characteristic uh, of Walter. So he would be there discussing the latest things of the day, history of how this related to past, recounting uh, stories of the war uh, amongst everything of, uh, uh, of the modern astronomy as well. So it is a great honor to be able to give tonight's lecture. It's always worthwhile, <coughs> since uh, Joss has sort of embarrassed me with that last story, to give a little context of why would a Nobel Prize winner uh, provide a return uh, to a set of questions asked uh, at such an important time. And the reality is that my mail server had completely melted down. So it was literally the only email in my inbox at the time <laughs> <laughs> because the whole thing had crashed uh, due to the large influx of email. So there was a little luck involved in all of that. All right, so tonight I want to talk about the state of uh, the universe. And I'm going to tell you, as one always does, about the state of the universe uh, straight up, which is that the universe is expanding. It's about 13.8 billion years old, and the universe is very nearly what we say flat. Now, I'm going to explain why you should care about any of those things as part of this story. The other thing we want to discuss is what the universe is made out of. And the universe is a bit of a mess. And it's a mess because it's very complicated. It's made of many, many things, not just one type of thing. 5% of the universe are the atoms which we are made out of, that we know and study here on Earth in every area of physics except for astronomy, effectively. 95% of the universe is stuff that we call dark, dark energy and dark matter. And those are things we call dark because we do not yet know how to detect it and uh, we're trying to, in, at least in the case of dark matter, and they remain a bit of an enigma. We can discern the basic ideas behind these two things that make up 95% of the universe, but we cannot directly detect. On top of that, we have things that we understand quite a lot better. For example, photons are a very small part of the universe, but a very important part of the universe. Uh, and neutrinos, which we have a moderate understanding, but still have a lot of mysteries. For example, we know uh, neutrinos have mass. We don't really know why, because our theory, the great theory of uh, particle physics predicts they shouldn't have mass. And so they remain, I would say, a place where I have a feeling future Nobel Prizes will likely be won as we untangle how they work. Within those atoms, uh, well, you don't think about this, but in astronomy, uh, we have hydrogen, helium, and what we call metals. And it turns out that lithium and beyond are what we call metals. They make up 2% of the universe. Uh, and, uh, of course, the place then that we are, Earth, which is not exactly made up of this combination of things, as you will see, is a very unusual place. And that's easy to forget that we live in a very unusual place uh, within the universe. All right, so now let's understand how we know all these things. 
So we're going to go back to the beginnings of cosmology and the beginnings of observational cosmology. When uh, we took the light uh, from, for example, the sun, and we spread it out into the colors of the rainbow, what we call the spectrum, and there is a fingerprint of light that every atom has, and so you can identify, for example, what is in the sun. And this became a very important study starting in the late uh, 19th century and, and, and became sort of the main thing people were working on in the earliest 20th century. Uh, <clears throat> and so people were able to start identifying things in stars, and then they started looking at these little fuzzy blobs that were known as nebulae, and we eventually realized they were galaxies. And Vesto Melvin Slifer, whose day job, or actually night job, was looking at the canals of Mars, among other things, uh, went through and took the first spectra of these fuzzy blobs, now known as galaxies. And he noticed they were funny. They contained all of the features, the fingerprints of stars, but they were quite mysteriously shifted redward compared to those stars. And that meant to him that uh, they must be moving due to what we call the Doppler shift. And of course, we all know the Doppler shift is that if a, a, a police car goes by with a siren on, you hear a shift in the pitch of the siren as it goes by you. And that's because relative to the speed of sound, the car is moving and it compresses the sound waves in the direction of motion, stretches it in, uh, uh, in the receding direction. And light is a wave, it's a little different than a sound wave, and that same thing happens. If a galaxy is moving towards you, its uh, motion relative to the speed of light effectively creates a Doppler shift. And so he went through and he could go through and see that things were moving at hundreds of kilometers per second based on this inference. And that was a mystery because everything was moving away from us. That was a conundrum in 1916 when he made this measurement. And that conundrum uh, was why would we be someplace which everything was trying to move away from? The Copernican principle is shouldn't every place in the universe basically be the same? And this seemed to violate this. I also like talking about uh, Vesto Slifer because Vesto Slifer's family gave a scholarship which I got at the University of Arizona. I had no idea who this guy was. Uh, and of course, he ended up being a big part of my thesis, and being connected to that family through there uh, is a very special thing for me. <clears throat> All right, so how did we make progress on this? Well, we measured distances. And measuring distances in astronomy is not straightforward because you can't just put a ruler down between us and the nearest stars. You need to go through and look at how things appear. And I think we intuitively understand that the further away something is, the fainter it's going to be. And Thanks to what we call the inverse square law, you can actually calculate it quite precisely. And it turns out there's lots of complications in cosmology that we're not going to go into today. Um, but to first order, the further away something is, the fainter it appears. Uh, and there's some little tweaks to that we have to worry about, but let's not worry about them tonight. And so in 1929, Edwin Hubble, who most of you will have heard of, had access to the largest telescope on the planet, the Hooker 100-inch, and he went out and started looking at these galaxies and seeing the stars in them, at least what he thought were stars. Uh, and he assumed that, for example, the brightest star in a galaxy is the same, and therefore he could judge the distance to the galaxy by how bright its brightest stars were. The fainter the brightest stars were, the further its distance. 
Okay, so he went and made a, a plot, as I'll show you, but he discovered in 1929 that the faster the galaxy was moving, the fainter its stars. In other words, the faster the motion away, the further the distance. And to show you his data, and I think it's always important to look at what great scientific discoveries are based on, this, you know, that's one of these things that as a student, when you turn in your lab book, you're like hoping I get a passing grade, it's pretty ugly. But I'm afraid the data is never quite as clean as it is in the textbooks. And uh, that is an important lesson for everyone to remind themselves, is that great discoveries can look pretty ugly. In this case, you can see brighter stars, fainter stars, low amounts of spectral shift, large amounts of spectral shift, and there is a trend that the further uh, away, that is the fainter the stars, the larger the motion. And from this, Hubble went out and announced that the universe was expanding. Now, why would he say that? Well, it actually kind of makes sense. Uh, yesterday, I baked my thesis in a competition that ANU Research School of Earth Sciences does, so I baked a sourdough, and I pulled it full of currants, and I let it rise for a little bit and let it uh, rise for a lot. Uh, and now I'm going to show you why that would be a good analogy by this uh, diagram. So I have the universe here, and I'm going to expand it. So I've expanded the universe. So I think loaf one, loaf two. And I'm going to overlay. I didn't get to do this, it turns out, with the loaves of bread. But I've overlaid my universe as I've expanded it. And what do you see? Nearby objects, they've moved a little bit. I was measuring their spectral shift would be a little bit. Objects that are a long ways away, so their stars are fainter, well, they have moved a lot, so their spectral shift would have been a lot. The further, the faster. That is something you expect in expanding universe. Now, a cartoon is great, but you actually need to have a theory for science to really sing and make sure you think you're understanding what's going on. And that theory came actually in advance, although it was disconnected from the actual observations, uh, from Albert Einstein, where many great theories comes. And Albert Einstein, an amazing guy, I'm not convinced he would have been a great guy to have over for dinner based on my limited reading. Uh, and I'll give you a story. In 1907, uh, he came up what, with what he called the single greatest thought of his life. And he did this, at least by his story, that he saw a person fall off a roof. And as they fell, presumably to great personal harm, his revelation was, I don't think that person feels any gravity. I think his acceleration falling is exactly counteracting the gravity, and I think that always happens anywhere in the universe at any given time. Most of us would have probably been calling an ambulance. That was his greatest thought. Eight and a half years later, he figured out how to reconcile if that is always true, what is, what is the uh, outcomes. And just to think about it, it's equivalent to saying you cannot make an experiment. If I put you in a box and I put you in a rocket that's accelerating at 9.8 meters per second squared compared to being in a box on planet Earth, being accelerated by gravity by 9.8 meters per second squared. His basic tenet is those are indistinguishable um, uh, as, as physical attributes. So that, as I said, eight and a half years later, he realized to make it uh, work, 
you had to come up with a series of equations that uh, governed gravity uh, that predicted, for example, that space would be curved. This turns out, this discovery, not E equals mc squared. E equals mc squared make, made Einstein famous amongst physicists. This discovery actually made him famous worldwide because he, from pure thought alone, came up with something that predicted things. And so while now we think of this as being kind of esoteric, and most of us know special relativity e equals mc squared, photoelectric effect maybe if you're in certain areas, uh, this is actually the thing that made Einstein the iconic figure on the world stage. And so he predicted that light would, for example, be bent, that, that, that gravity would curve space, and light traveling around the sun would be, uh, travel on a curved path relative to our point of view and essentially be bent in a way that was calculable. And it turns out they could go out, and Arthur Eddington went out, and this is the actual photographic plate. Uh, it turns out that uh, Eddington uh, was clouded out, uh, but uh, the astronomer Royale uh, did that. Unfortunately, he couldn't get his telescope focused, but it was still good enough to make the measurement we think. There is some questions of whether or not the data were good enough, but the latest I have seen says actually, yes, no problem. Um, and the much better experiment shown to the right was actually done here in Australia uh, about uh, four years later. But it was experimentally demonstrated, and to this day, Einstein's theory of general relativity has never uh, been able to, uh, well, all experiments have been able to uh, conclusively show that its predictions are in line with experimentation. Of course, there are some things that we haven't yet been able to, to test, but at this point, it has never failed a test. That's why it is an absolutely an amazing theory that has lasted uh, over a century. So it predicted curved space. And uh, it also allowed Einstein to do what Newton could never do, which was solve cosmology. Now, another person you probably didn't want to have dinner with was Newton. <laughs> Newton went nuts trying to figure out how to, what do you do with gravity when space just keeps on going on and on. It turns out there's only one solution to Newton's laws in that case, which is that the universe has nothing in it. And Newton knew that he was in it, and therefore it was in violation uh, of his theory. Uh, and uh, Newton, as I said, I could tell you stories, but I won't tonight. Uh, he, was a, he was an interesting guy. But Einstein immediately realized his theory did allow him to go out and test these things. And so he went out and started solving the equations quite early on, but got an answer he did not like, which said that the universe should be in motion. And Einstein looked around and said, the universe seems static. So Einstein did what every theorist does when their equations do not align to the world around them. They add a fudge factor. That's always what they do. And he added a fudge factor called the cosmological constant. It turns out we think of this now as energy that is fundamental to space itself. And under his equations, this energy that is tied to space itself causes gravity to push rather than pull, as we normally think of gravity doing. Now, later on, when it was re realized in 1929 that the universe actually was in motion, Einstein was quoted as saying, 
uh, I was acting like a donkey. Often said, it's the dumbest thing I ever did. Actually, he said, I was acting like a donkey. Uh, and uh, because he kept on sticking with it, uh, despite it being a real blemish on his theory. All right, so within general relativity, we don't really think of things as the Doppler shift, although this is also contested between different, uh, character, uh, different people. But when we look uh, across the universe at very distant objects, of course, we're looking back in time because the light takes time to reach us. And as the light travels through space, we think of space itself expanding and stretching the photon as it travels through that space that's expanding with it. And so as you look back in time, you actually see the light traveling through the stretching of space and it's stretching with it. And so you literally get light stretching as uh, the universe expands. Now, if the universe is expanding, we can do the thought experiment as, well, what does the past look like? What does that mean? It means that in the past, things will have been closer and closer and closer together. And at some point, there would have been a time when everything in the universe was on top of everything else. The Big Bang is sort of a natural thing to expect in an expanding universe. And you actually have to concoct quite elaborate schemes to make it not happen, which, of course, science did for a while because it seemed so crazy uh, that the universe would have a beginning. Some people would say there's no way the universe could have a beginning, and I probably still share that sentiment, but it may not be the beginning that you're thinking. Uh, and I would, I would argue that the Big Bang is almost certainly whatever that is, because I don't know what it is, is probably not the beginning of the universe, but rather the beginning of what I would call the current phase of the universe is probably a more likely uh, way of describing it. All right, so we can think of this whole thought experiment as a graph. You have two galaxies separated right now at a certain time, and I can run the universe in reverse. And if I run the universe in reverse, then I can figure out when the universe was all in one space. So that's the time of the Big Bang. So effectively, you measure how fast the universe is expanding. That's the steepness or slope of this line. You run it in reverse, and bam, you find out when the universe began, the time of the Big Bang. So measuring how fast the universe is expanding right now is just literally looking at an object, seeing how far away it is, and dividing by how much space is expanded. And you divide those two things, and you effectively have the expansion rate of the universe. I thought this was a great idea to do for a thesis, because it turns out people have been arguing uh, about it for 80 years. And I was a young punk uh, astronomer. Of course, I'm going to solve this age-old problem. So here I am, uh, three years, 11 months, and four days after I started my thesis, but I wasn't counting, showing my thesis advisor the answer to the, how fast the universe was expanding. And the number that I got back then, uh, it turns out, was, uh, I would say, confirmed, or should I say, uh, there was a much bigger project using the Hubble Space Telescope that came a few years later that was run uh, by Jeremy Mould, uh, among others, at Mount Stromo, and he's the person who actually brought me to Australia uh, in 1994. But the answer that uh, I got, but actually they got and showed that was actually correct, is that the universe is about 14 billion years old when you make this measurement. Uh, the uh, current number is actually contested at about the 5% level. 
And we have, maybe we want to talk about it at the end, there is actually some tension right now at the 5% level of how we measure this in different ways. And that may be one of the big, outstanding, interesting issues left in cosmology. Uh, anyway, so the uh, idea here of figuring out the age is quite straightforward, but we cheated. And we cheated because that line is straight. And the universe is full of stuff. We're living proof of that. And that stuff has gravity, and that gravity will affect how the universe expands over time. And if the universe has a lot of stuff in it, uh, it will slow down. And so we should not necessarily expect that line to be straight. So if the universe is slowing down to our mutual gravitational attraction of everything in the universe, the trajectory will be different and the universe won't be as old. So my pitch coming to Australia, it turns out, was to say, I'm going to measure how much the universe is slowing down. But I'll come to that in a second. It turns out what the universe does in the past gives you an inkling of what's going to happen in the future. So if the universe isn't slowing down much, it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. If the universe has a lot of stuff in it, it will slow down. And if it has enough stuff in it, it will slow down and go into reverse. So while all universes seem to start in a Big Bang, only the heavy ones finish in a Ganab Gib, the Big Bang backwards. All right, so let's review. The slowing down of the universe tells us how old we think the universe is. It tells us the ultimate fate of the universe. Is it going to keep expanding forever, or is it going to, it's going to end? And it turns out, remember, space can be curved. And so the weight of the universe is uh, related to how much it's slowing down, or essentially its density. And that defines the shape of the universe. Now, defining the shape of the universe is always a little complicated, so I have a U-Butte graphic here to show you, which will uh, probably confuse you, but I'll do my best. So the universe can have one of three shapes, okay? And the way I like to think about these shapes is, rather than being neatly on two dimensions representing three up here, the universe is unfortunately three dimensions with this extra time dimension thrown in, which you have no hope of visualizing in your mind unless you're one of the special people who can visualize four, uh, four dimensions. And I always like to say that uh, you do not want to be one of the people who can visualize four dimensions. <laughs> I can't, you don't want to be. But the basic idea is the shape is how you navigate and get around, uh, for example, space. Now we take for granted here that if I move this way, I move this way, and I move up, I've got three dimensions to move in, and, and they're all connected by straight lines. But that's local here to this room. Let's think of the Earth. If I start moving around the Earth, of course, when you travel to London or something, you travel on a curved uh, trajectory because the Earth is curved. And if you make a triangle on Earth, its angles add up to more than 180 degrees. Get a globe out if you don't believe me. In space, it's the same. If space is curved onto itself, triangles would add up to more than 180 degrees. And it turns out we actually now have ways of measuring 
uh, angles over large pieces of space that I'll show you uh, effectively towards the end of this lecture. So space can be curved, and heavy space is curved onto itself like a ball. Light space naturally springs away from itself like a saddle. And then there's this you know, knife edge where the universe is balanced, having just enough stuff where the universe uh, is neither cur is not curved, it's flat, and sort of behaves the way your intuition uh, would uh, indicate. Turns out that the th one of the theories to understand the very early times of the universe, which we call the inflationary theory, uh, predicts that the universe should be flat. All right, so my pitch to Jeremy Mould and the uh, Mount Stromal Observatory in 1994 was, hey, we have the opportunity to go and look back in time. What I want to do is measure how fast the universe is expanding now. So I'm going to measure distance and redshift now. And then I'm going to go and measure objects on the other side of the universe that their light's taken billions of years to reach us. And I'm going to measure how fast the universe is expanding then, and I'm going to compare them. Okay? If the universe is essentially at the same rate in the past as the present, then it's coasting, and it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger forever and ever. If the universe is heavy, it's going to be slowing down. It'll be expanding faster in the past and have slowed down over the last 5 billion years. On this side of that trajectory, the universe exists forever. Or sorry, the universe ends. Uh, that is, gravity wins and the universe is finite. That side, the universe goes on forever. It was a good pitch because anyone, this has been something people want to do for 50 years. But I was fortunately born at the right time and place to make this measurement, where technology and knowledge came together to allow me uh, and the team uh, that I was part of to do this experiment, and that was part of my pitch. So what was the knowledge? We began to understand exploding stars, which we call type 1a supernovae. Here is a picture of one. So what's a type 1a supernova? Well, let's understand the uh, schematic view of the life of the sun. We've lived for five billion years, left with the sun. Five or six billion years from now, the sun's going to puff up, destroy the Earth, and collapse down to a tiny little star, star called a white dwarf star. Now, if our sun was instead born as a binary, you have a different life history. The first star puffs up, but rather than just making a beautiful object in the sky, it ends up donating its material under certain configurations to the second star and making that star actually quite a bit heavier than either star was to begin with. The first star becomes a tiny little white dwarf, which is about the size of the Earth, but the mass of the Sun. The other star now has been dumped with a bunch of material on it. It's hot, it's excited, its nuclear engine gets going really fast, and it'll eventually burn through its material quite quickly, begin to puff up, and start donating its material back to the white dwarf, that uh, first star, making it, in certain instances, grow heavier, heavier, and heavier until it reaches a magic number of 1.383 times the mass of our sun, where it becomes unstable, and the whole thing explodes as a giant thermonuclear bomb, not the size of something that Kim Jong-un can look at, but rather something 1.383 times bigger than our sun, noting that our sun is 300,000 times bigger than the Earth. So it's a very big nuclear bomb. For an astronomer, these are great. First of all, they make all the iron in the room. So Australia thinks these are great. And if anyone knows Gina Reinhardt, remember, these are the objects that made her rich 
and she should continue funding research in them. <laughs> For us, as astronomers, we have something that's five billion times brighter than our sun that explodes and fades away over 20 days or so. It takes 20 days to rise and then fades into oblivion. These are great things, because remember, I can figure out distances by how bright things appear. And it turns out, work done in Chile by some colleagues that I work with as part of my PhD, went through and figured out how to measure distances with thee, that is to calibrate how bright they are, very accurately, to about 5 or 6% in precision. So that was knowledge that I brought to Australia from my PhD thesis, from my colleagues. And then we had the, uh, and I should say that's the, the basic ideas, uh, the, the bigger ones are, uh, the brighter ones uh, go slower than the fainter ones, and there are physical reasons why. Uh, but the other technology we had was that of telescopes and, uh, and more traditional technology. The Keck telescopes, 10-meter telescopes, still the largest uh, fully functional telescopes on planet uh, Earth uh, in, in Hawaii came online. And they were the first telescopes big enough to reliably look back and take a spectrum, that is to get the colors of the rainbow, of these very distant objects. But we also needed to find these very distant objects. They're very rare. They only happen every several hundred years in a galaxy. So we have to look at thousands of galaxies, which mean we need to look at big pieces of sky. Now, in 1994, the first two megapixel uh, digital detectors, which are the forebears um, four of the things in our iPhones today, came on to the market, you know, partially developed uh, with astronomers in mind. And so astronomers are right at the leading edge of this. So that technology came to bear in 1994. Before that, these digital detectors were too small. You wouldn't see enough galaxies to reliably find one. And photographic plates are 100 times less sensitive than these. And so you just can't see faint enough. Uh, they're also not digital, so they're really hard to actually find things that change. So all those things came together, and that was my pitch when I came here. So I was just before moving to Australia. I was uh, in Chile and uh, formed the team uh, that eventually uh, went out and did this work. So it wasn't just me, of course, there was a uh, competing team at Berkeley led by Saul Perlmutter. And one of the great things about science is there is competition. And that competition should always be constructive. And for the most part, ours was. There were some issues that uh, I didn't really get involved in. But uh, in the end, having two teams look at that meant we did better work. We checked each other, and we made sure that we didn't make mistakes. This was not easy in 1994. We had to go through 50 gigabytes of data a night. So about 1,000 images like this. Each one of these have a couple thousand galaxies in them. These images, as I said, four megapixels each. Uh, and you had to go through, and my job was to write the computer software that would go through this. But this was a time when we used things, if people remember in the audience, Pentium 200s. And we had just got one gigabyte hard drives. And I had 50 gigabytes of data. And each machine might have one or two hard drives on it. So we ended up having to daisy chain every computer available uh, at an observatory to make this work. And the job was to pick the needles out in the haystack. Amongst all this data, there would be one, two, or three supernovae of uh, those thousands of images. And we picked them out by seeing things appear 
over a couple week interval. So here, the fourth day of April, nothing. Uh, three weeks later, something has appeared. This object turned out to be five billion light years in distance, meaning it exploded before the Earth was formed. That is the power of cosmology. We can look back really good. Don't expect us to look to the future particularly well. So I take you to uh, Chile, just to give you a sense. This is the sister telescope to the Anglo-Australia telescope. Uh, this is uh, um, someone from the other team, because we used to share the nights on this telescope. It was the best telescope in the world. They'd get three nights, then we'd get three nights. And as the sun sets, we're taking data. And we only get six nights a year on this telescope, and we get more time than anyone else does. So we have to make everything sure everything's perfect. So we're sitting there making, and I'm running the software on this thing. But the software, we're using early versions of artificial intelligence. And uh, back in uh, deep learning days when there was only one or two uh, layers, because that was all you could compute. Uh, and that wasn't very good. So we used just good old grunt intelligence, armies of people that have to go through, stay up all night, find the things, so that we can send them to the largest telescopes in the world, Keck in Hawaii, so they could get the spectra and tell us, yes, that is an object. Here is its redshift. It is an exploding star. So it was very intense, and I didn't get a lot of sleep. And there at that telescope, you can see Saul Perlmutter uh, from the other team. Why is he there? Because, of course, he needs to use that same telescope. Astronomers are very friendly around the world because we all hang out at the telescopes together because there's only a few of them that we can use at any given time. So, after three very hard, long years, Adam Rees, who you would have seen at Keck Telescope, a co-winner of the Nobel Prize with me and Saul, sent me this diagram at the end of 1997. Not quite this diagram, but the basic idea. And when I looked at this, I thought, hmm, we have done something horribly wrong. Why? So, each exploding star gives you a measure of the expansion rate of the universe. And each one has some uncertainty given by the error bars as there. So you can go through and you can look at those. And comparing the nearby to the distant, so the nearby objects, you can't really tell what's going on. On average, they could lie in any part of that diagram. But these distant objects clearly, much to my disappointment, were not in the bottom part of the diagram because OK, I know we're supposed to be objective, but I kind of like the idea of a universe that had a beginning and an end. Uh, but this data basically said not a single object is consistent with being down in that part of the diagram. All right, fine. The problem was, on average, those objects don't lie in the yellow part of the diagram where I was expecting them to lie, but rather they lie above the line. Now, I know you're like, OK, I got to squint. But if you go through and do a reasonable set of analysis, you're 99.9% .9 sure that they're above the line. So that's what we would call evidence, but I would not say conclusive proof, except for, at the same time, Saul Perlmutter's team is doing the same independent analysis with different objects and basically getting exactly the same answer. And so they're 99.9% .9 sure. So now you have 99.9 .9 meets 99.9, .9, and then you're 99.99% .99 sure. And that starts getting actually quite interesting. Uh, and so that is the result that came out in two papers uh, in 1998. 
Uh, and it is for that that our two teams won the Nobel Prize uh, in uh, Sweden. And uh, I should say this really was a team effort. And I think one of the problems with Nobel Prizes is uh, they do tend to focus on a certain numbers of individuals rather than the entire team. That is a problem with them. Uh, and so I just acknowledge the fact that uh, uh, it is a team and two teams indeed who worked very, very hard on this. So what is pushing on the universe? Well, we only have to look to Albert Einstein's great mistake, his cosmological constant, energy that's part of space itself, that can push on the universe and cause it to speed up. Gravity pushing, speeding the universe up is exactly the type of thing we need. We call that dark energy more generically because maybe it changes a little bit over time or it's not quite what Albert Einstein was thinking of. But that is the basic idea that we had in 1998. And it turns out it makes very specific predictions of what the universe could and should be doing that we can test with better and better data. And we have, but the basic 1998 conclusion was that the universe to meet that trajectory had to be a mix of stuff that pushes and pulls, 30% stuff that pulls, 70% stuff that pushes. And that was essentially the discovery of 1998. And people reasonably were skeptical because this is a crazy thing. You're having to make up new material in the universe. So people go out and they start testing things. Now, one of the big tests was done here uh, in Australia. Joss was involved in this. And they went out and they measured gravity, the attractive version of gravity, not the pushing part of gravity. And they did this by making a map of more than 200,000 galaxies and essentially looking at how matter, uh, the foam-like structure that matter makes. Because that, turns out, gives you a sense of how gravity is working. And uh, you essentially create this in a computer where you can start uh, with a Big Bang and then you allow gravity to just go through and make the universe through the equations of, of gravity. And you see what you get depending on how much stuff there is and how uh, gravity is effectively working. Is it working just as general relativity is working? Is the, the universe full of atoms or is it full of stuff like dark matter? And so when you go through and do this, you can actually create uh, mock universes, and you have the universe as observed here, and then you have different versions of what's in the universe, how much, and whether or not there's stuff, for example, dark matter. And you can look up there, and I want everyone to look at the screen and choose model one, two, three, or four. All right, and we're going to vote. All right, because you guys turn out, you do power spectra in your head very, very accurately, almost as good as uh, fast, Fourier transform, fast Fourier transform. So who thinks model one looks like the data? Who thinks model two looks like the data? Who thinks model three looks like the data? Who thinks model four looks like the data? So. The one that, when you do actually do the, Fourier the, the, the power spectrum analysis, it turns out that, indeed, model three looks like the data. Uh, and, but, the, the, the second closest is model two. And you'll note that we had about 10% of the people vote on model two. That's known as uncertainty. P 
people who voted on Model 2, you're not wrong. That turns out that's not completely ruled out by the data. But what is Model 3? Basically, we have stuff. We have 30% of the amount of stuff in the universe where gravity pulls, um, and that amount is 30% of the amount you need to make the universe flat. Remember I said the more stuff you add, you go from being uh, curved open to curved closed. So you get 30% of the way. That's what that says. All right. So that's one measurement. Uh, I should also say that that matter had to be very special stuff. It needed to effectively be material that just does not interact with itself. It goes right through itself. Uh, and partially that's just to make the, the uh, data, the, the, the gravity simulation work right. But we also note that that six times, the amount of gravity there in that uh, simulation was six times more gravity than actually is observed in the atoms of the universe. So wherever we look, it turns out, we see dark matter. And again, work done, uh, some of the earliest stuff done here in Australia by Ken Freeman at Mount Stromlo, seeing rotation of galaxies, which allow you to measure how much mass there are. Ken was able to see in 1970 that there seemed to be uh, dark matter that was causing galaxies to spin more than they should. And this is work that Vera Rubin uh, did in detail along with Albert Bosma. Uh, and uh, you see it in clusters. And Fritz Zwicky did this in the 1930s and realized that anywhere you look, you see dark matter. Matter, the, uh, the motions uh, caused by gravity, uh, induced by gravity, are always much bigger, about six times bigger the, uh, uh, than the atoms present. And so there's something that we call dark matter. Now, what it is, we're not sure. Our best guess is it's probably some undiscovered particle, not unlike a neutrino that can pass right through Earth, right through itself, and basically, as we say, does not interact. If something does not interact, it's invisible. And before you feel bad about something invisible, just remember, if it's invisible to you, you're invisible to it. So it is symmetric. Okay? So it would seem to have gravity just like atoms, but essentially just goes right through itself. That is our best guess. We are looking for dark matter. We have not yet discovered it. Now, our final uh, major experiment that, is, uh, that I'm going to talk about today, there are some other ones, is what we call the cosmic microwave background. This is an image taken at microwave uh, wavelengths, so just a little higher frequency than most radio waves. And this is the entire sky projected on like a globe. So you have the entire sky around us projected into uh, this shape. And what we're looking here are tiny deviations in the temperature of the sky, how bright the sky is effectively. And those deviations are tiny. They're one part in 100,000. And there is a theory that says that the Big Bang essentially created what I'll call splash marks in the early universe. Those waves then rippled around the universe until the universe cooled off such that this radiation uh, no longer uh, could be created. Uh, and we get a picture of essentially the sound waves rippling through the universe. So let me show you how this works. You've got the Big Bang. Um, and if you think about what the universe is made out of, 
the wave action depends on what the universe is made out of. It. So honey versus water, the splash marks are different. Think of it that way. So the Big Bang throws a whole bunch of rocks into the universe. Those waves ripple around. Uh, the universe suddenly gives us sort of this snapshot at the end of what we call the cosmic microwave background. And then we can look at those waves and see what they look like. Now, depending on what those waves look like, uh, it turns out uh, you, can, you can go through and measure how big the waves are, different sizes, different amounts of them. And that's what this measurement is. This is big waves, ones that are half the way across the screen, to little ones, which are the smallest pixels that you can see. And it says there should be a lot of waves of this size, uh, very few of this size, more of this size, etc. Now, the line is the prediction more or less made in 1998 based on the universe having dark energy and dark matter in it. And the red dots are the measurements of the sky made uh, 10 to 15 years later. And so science is about prediction. And when you can predict something this well in advance, uh, you're, you're beyond lucky, okay? So I don't guarantee that everything we've said here tonight is absolutely correct, but the basic scheme of it is correct in the same way Newton's laws of gravity are not wrong, they're just incomplete. So probably what I'm saying here is incomplete, but it's not completely fanciful, okay? So those sound waves allow us to tell you that the universe is made six and a half parts dark matter to one, one part atoms. Uh, and it turns out the sound of those, those sound waves, we know exactly how big they are in meters. Uh, and that means we can go through and we can see how big they appear on the sky. And that allows us to figure out the shape of the universe because the universe bends light uh, if it's curved. And so in the same way, looking at the back of a spoon, if it's curved, uh, as a ball, things are magnified. If they're uh, at the shape of a saddle, they're demagnified. And so you can go through and ask ourselves, how big are those sound waves and what do they look like? Well, it turns out that you can predict the sound waves will be this big if the universe has this geometry, this big if it has this geometry, but actually the universe has that geometry uh, to within better than a half a percent. The universe is more or less flat. Now, it's a knife edge. I can't tell you if it's exactly flat, but it is very, very close to being flat. All right. So we have these two other experiments. Uh, if we go through and look at the shape of the universe, remember if the universe is flat, it has 100% of the amount of material necessary to make it flat. And that experiment with galaxies told us 30% of it was gravitationally attractive, and that leaves 70% mystery matter. The same mystery matter we need to be pushing on the universe, accelerating it. So it sort of all comes together that no matter how we look at it, the universe is messy, but it does seem to be 95% these dark things we can't see, 5% of the atoms that we see. Now, the density of the universe is very, very low when we go out and we measure it. Uh, I'm just going to give you some numbers here. But you can go out and easily do experiments just to finish up. 
to measure, for example, how many photons there are. That's because this is actually radio waves that obey a very precise physical law known as a black body, and you can calculate exactly how many photons there are in the universe and the density. Turns out you can measure that to, uh, very, you know, within a percent easily. Uh, you can also go out and do cool things, for example, uh, and to measure the mass of the neutrino. When we go out and we measure galaxies today, we have so many galaxies, we can go through, and I'm sorry, my latest version of PowerPoint is clearly doing something funny on the screen. Here we have a universe that has heavy neutrinos, that has neutrinos with mass, and here the neutrinos don't have mass. Now I told you a neutrino is sort of like dark matter, it can go right through itself and right through everything. But because it has mass, its gravity drags the atoms with it. And in the end, it drags the galaxies with it just a little bit and smudges it out. So with modern measurements, we can go out, and here's our biggest and best galaxy map of the day. Uh, you can go through and figure out the mass, uh, total mass density of neutrinos, and infer essentially the, 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 uh, the mass of the neutrino. It turns out we can't quite see it yet, so we have a uh, very good lower limit on the mass of the neutrino which is uh, the best measurement we have yet on uh, the mass of the neutrino from the top end. That is, it's the lowest limit that we have. So those are ways that we can pull all this stuff together quite remarkably. All right. So the universe is an amazing place, and we're going to have the opportunity to do lots of things to go out and explore, for example, the earliest time of the universe. And these are the exciting things that we can expect to happen over the next five years. This is a tiny piece, one twenty millionth of the entire sky, seen with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and we're looking there about 350 million years after the Big Bang. But what happened before that? Well, the universe was a Big Bang, it was hot, it cooled down. And so we think there is an epoch where it's just dark and very boring, 10 million years after the Big Bang, not going to see much there. But then the universe is going to light up with the first stars. Gravity is going to take those little bumps and wiggles that we see in the cosmic microwave background, increase the, increase the, uh, sorry, uh, create the first stars and galaxies. So we have uh, that, and we have the ability uh, to go through and use that cosmic microwave background to infer some very interesting things about the universe. So let's run it before the cosmic microwave background. That means the universe was hotter and denser. And at some point, it was so hot and dense, it acted like our sun. And you can go through and run the equations of nuclear reactions, which are very useful. Uh, for example, you want to make a hydrogen bomb. Um, turns out they're actually useful for understanding astronomy. And you can go through and calculate how much hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And it turns out the prediction is there's not much anything else there is in the universe. Uh, what it tells you is that the nuclear reactions in the universe created the hydrogen and helium, uh, and then, as I said, trace amounts of lithium, but nothing else. Everything else was created afterwards. Where was it created? In those supernovae I've already told you about, and also in some stars. So imagine you can go out and look uh, for the earliest stars. <coughs> How are we going to do that? Well, you can look way back in time with a really super huge telescope that does not yet exist, or you can look locally. You can go through and look for the trace elements 
and look for a star that has basically no elements in it. So that is something we have done uh, here in Australia. You go through, you have hundreds of billions of stars around us, <coughs> and you pick out the stars that have uh, no elements other than hydrogen and helium in that. And that's something we've been doing up at uh, Siding Springs with SkyMapper. And uh, using a huge digital camera, we were able to find the first star that has no discernible iron in it. So it turns out it has a little bit of some other stuff in it. So it's not one of the pristine stars made at the time of the, right after the Big Bang. But it was probably a second star. It was made out of the ashes of a star that we think created probably a giant black hole. Now, you will have heard the gravitational uh, gra discovery of gravitational waves. There's a big population of giant black holes. This might well be part of that early population of stars. We're not sure yet. So in the future, we're going to be able to look back further and further. Australia is invested in a giant telescope. This is the Giant Magellan Telescope. Uh, it is one of three telescopes being planned to build. This one's 25 meters across. Uh, we'll be in Chile. There's a 30-meter telescope, which may or may not be built in uh, Hawaii at some point. And the Europeans are building a 39-meter telescope. And Australia will not necessarily have access to this telescope. We're not sure, but we are... Uh, in a strategic relationship now with the European Southern Observatory. So these are coming, and they are going to sit alongside this amazing James Webb Space Telescope that we hope uh, no one else uh, short circuits the giant tennis court unfolding in the future. Uh, this is a very uh, expensive uh, telescope, but an amazing telescope that will literally be able to look back to the first galaxies and stars uh, and begin to see the birth of the universe. And of course, here in Australia, we have uh, the Square Kilometer Array that will look at the hydrogen as the universe is turning on. The first uh, stars and galaxies will emerge from hydrogen, and the plan is for the Square Kilometer Array to look back and actually see the hydrogen that they emerge from. So there's lots of excitement coming up. All right, so that's the future of astronomy. Let's talk about the future of the universe. Uh, the universe, according to the discovery of dark energy, uh, is going to take off. It's going to keep expanding faster and faster. I've told you it's sped up. Well, the more it uh, speeds up, the more dark energy dominates the universe, and the faster it's able to expand. So this is a runaway process. The more the universe expands, the more dark energy dominates, the more it pushes, the faster it expands. So eventually, the creation of space, it turns out, uh, happens even faster than light's ability to move through it. In other words, if you have a universe that is expanding faster and faster, a galaxy will put out a photon. The photon will travel through space and normally reach us. But if space is being created faster than light can travel through it, the light gets stranded between us and the galaxy. Galaxies we see today, the light they emit uh, now many of them, when you look back about 11 billion light years in distance, that light will never ever reach us in the future because it gets stranded on the way here. So essentially the universe has this very, very awful ending. Uh, of course, as I told you, predicting the future is hard. So until we really understand absolutely everything, it's impossible to predict the future with absolute certainty. But unless 
the universe suddenly changes direction, completely different than what it is doing now, the universe is going to continue to expand faster and faster, and in the process, fade away into a grand darkness where we here at Earth, who are cosmologists, will look out into an empty universe where there is nothing left to study, thereby making me unemployed <laughs> and probably uh, you know, looking at planets for the rest of my life. Thank you very much. All right, so, um, very inspirational talk. There must be lots of questions. And you're allowed to ask dumb questions. I like dumb questions. I don't like hard questions. Is that setting, is that setting me up? Um, so, yeah, our estimate of the age of the universe comes from the fact that that Hubble constant has been constant, but I noticed on the last graph you put up, your red line yeah. intersected at the same place. Is that just lucky? Well, it turns out it is lucky. Right. Uh, the beautiful thing is that because the universe is made up of dark matter, atoms, and dark energy uh, at sort of a 70-30 mix, the atoms and the dark matter essentially behave the same, the universe uh, goes slows down for a while as the universe expands. The universe becomes less dense in the atoms and stuff we're made out of. But eventually, the dark energy, which is part of space itself, stays exactly the same density as the universe expands. So it becomes more and more important. And about six billion years ago, it started speeding the universe up. And it turns out the amount it slowed down and the amount it speeds up uh, counteract each other to within 3% of just doing a straight line. So we got very lucky that uh, that straight line and that speeding up and slowing down uh, are almost exactly the same effect. But in practice, when we're measuring the age of the universe, we have to calculate the full trajectory. Hello. Um, what's the current thinking on the existence of other universes? All right, so uh, other universes are one of these interesting problems for scientists because, uh, of course, science is about ideas that you test. And we don't yet know how uh, to test for other universes. People are trying to get their heads around it. Uh, so at this point, we can speculate, and many people do, and I would say if you were to take a poll and say, okay, we know you can't test it. Do you think there's other universes out there? I would probably say a large, a considerable fraction of cosmologists would say probably. But probably doesn't cut it as a scientist because show me the evidence that they exist, and we don't have that yet. Indeed, there's just nothing at this point, I would say, that really points to there being other universes, except for belief in extrapolating theories well beyond where we really can test them at this point. So I'm not saying there won't be, I, I, I've actually, I think there are opportunities to start testing even the idea of there being other universes, uh, I think, but I haven't actually really seen a definitive test at this point. As you've invited dumb questions, I might Excellent. go for it and ask one. <laughs> if the universe is expanding, what happens to the Earth? Okay, so that's a, that is a very good question, which uh, it turns out that space expands, uh, but gravity 
acts within uh, parts of space. So right now, the Earth is not expanding. And indeed, the Earth was part of a piece of expanding space 13 and a half billion years ago, uh, which had enough, it was probably one of those bumps uh, where there was more material. Gravity caused our part of the universe to start collapsing. It ended up forming a bunch of galaxies, including the Milky Way. And so our part of the universe kind of expanded and collapsed back billions upon billions of years ago. Uh, and so once gravity takes a hold of the universe and stops its expansion, it doesn't, uh, except for under exceptionally crazy circumstances I don't want to talk about, it pretty much doesn't expand anymore. And so if you think about the universe, it is, um, well, let's, let's just think of my analogy of my uh, current sourdough that I was told, told you that I baked. The current, as the bread expands, doesn't expand. It's the, it's the analogy of the galaxy. It's the, the space bits in between the things that is expanding. And so we don't have to worry about expanding. Indeed, the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest big galaxy, is coming towards us and will merge with us in probably three or four billion years. Uh, and there is a circle around us where we're all gravitationally bound. And that will all eventually come together and form a super galaxy. And then other galaxies that are further away all have a bunch, a sphere around them where there's a bunch of galaxies that are gravitationally bound together. They will come together and form a super galaxy. But we will not be bound, and so we will get further and further apart over time. And so you can think of the whole universe collapsing down to these super galaxies that over the fullness of time become completely isolated from every other galaxy in the universe. So we don't know what dark matter is. Do we know what it isn't? So let me tell you what properties we do understand. So I, I can give you an infinite list of things it isn't. Uh, but the property that we know it has uh, is that it interacts by gravity, but does not interact measurably by any other force at this point. Now, our suspicion is that we hope that it will interact by one of the forces very, very weakly and is therefore detectable. Uh, that's not guaranteed. It could well be that it only interacts by gravity. Uh, and if it only interacts by gravity, it's effectively impossible to detect because gravity turns out as such a weak force, it's really, really difficult uh, to go through and uh, you know, do particle detection by the normal means which use electromagnetics, the strong and the weak force. Because the weak force isn't actually that weak compared to gravity. Gravity is really weak. So uh, at this point, it turns out in certain theories we can put limits. So uh, there is, for example, uh, mines that have big vats of liquid xenon sitting at quite cold temperatures under the Earth's crust so that the only thing that can really get in and interact with them in a way um, that is, is a, a hypothetical dark matter particle. Uh, and they've had these vats of xenon sitting there waiting and counting for a, what is effectively a ping. And at this point, uh, you get random pings and they've had sort of, I don't know what the last number was. It was a few years ago, it was two plus or minus three pings, uh, which means they hadn't detected it yet. And I should say xenon's not the only way to do it. There's uh, 
various other techniques and one that might be done here in Australia? Um, uh, so my, I have a few questions. My first question was um, with the telescopes, is the one that you use, is it still in use? So yes, the uh, telescopes that I used, uh, I, well, I should say almost all of them are still in use. The Keck telescopes are still some of the most powerful telescopes uh, in the world. Indeed, I would say the most powerful telescopes. Uh, the only telescope uh, that I don't use are the ones at Mount Stromlo that burned to the ground in 2003 in our bushfire. So all the other ones still in use, but we're going to have to start retiring some of them. They're beginning to get a little old, but they still have a few years left in them. Um, by the time that like the world is collapsed and destroyed, will the sun also be destroyed? And so what we think will happen, uh, and I should say this is not perfectly well understood, is that the Earth will keep on doing what it does. It goes around the sun, and for the next four to five billion years, not much is going to change except for the Earth, the sun's nuclear reactor is gradually heating up, and so the Earth will eventually have its oceans boiled off, uh, and this is, not, this, is, this is not climate change. This is future climate change, <laughs> not what's happening right now. Uh, and so that will happen probably on the timescale of the next billion years or so. Then as the sun gets uh, and sort of runs out of hydrogen in its very core, it's going to need to readjust itself. And when it readjusts itself, it'll start burning hydrogen further out. And when it does that, uh, it's going to puff up and become a much bigger star. Exactly the size of the star, still contested. It will puff out to nearly the Earth's position. At that point, depending on exactly what happens, the Earth will probably get swept up by the sun and go down to its core and be destroyed. Uh, if it isn't destroyed at that point, which is possible, uh, the sun will go through its bit. It will be very unhabitable because the, the earth will be many thousands of degrees. It'll collapse down and uh, we'll probably orbit the white dwarf uh, for eternity. So that's probably what will happen. But don't worry, these are billions of years in the future. Everyone can sleep well tonight. <laughs> Do astronomers ever speculate about there being other dimensions inside black holes, and will it ever be possible to measure other dimensions in space? Okay, so uh, astronomers, not so much. Physicists, on the other hand, are, uh, do, uh, do speculate about uh, multi-dimensions, not just within black holes, but actually all around us. Uh, people will have heard of string theory. String theory, um, postulates that there are 10 or 11 dimensions normally, uh, most of which are all around us, very, very small, what they call compact dimensions that uh, essentially are part very, very small, and they cause, uh, uh, they cause physical effects at microscopic scales. So one of the things that people are doing trying to measure that uh, is to look, for example, at how gravity works at the microscopic at the micron scale or maybe even nanometer scale. Now, it turns out we haven't been able to get down to the micron scale yet. But down at the millimeter scale, scale it turns out gravity still works like Newton says it would, or 
general relativity is. So there are ways to potentially test this. And the whole theory of string theory, which, again, has not been easy to test to this date, this is one of the ways you might imagine testing it. And that implicitly implies, just like general relativity had this extra dimensionality to it, uh, this has uh, you know, six or possibly seven extra dimensions to it. Potentially testable, not yet, though. Good day. My name is Conan. I am asking with regards to um, before the Big Bang, I am aware from a documentary by, doc by Professor Hawking that, they, that um, time did not exist prior to this. Um, could you please elaborate as to what the universe was like prior to the Big Bang, or what we know about so, it? So this is a very easy for me to answer, because I do not know what the universe was like before the Big Bang, and neither uh, did Stephen Hawking, and he would have said that. He, like any good theorist, Stephen Hawking was very good at, at providing a theory that made suggestions, but again, you have to be able to test them. So I don't know what the Big Bang was. I know what happened right after the Big Bang, and I showed you the nuclear reactions. Those start at about a second after the Big Bang, and at that point, we can actually start testing what was going on after the Big Bang. Before that, it's really extrapolation of things that we measure on Earth. So, I do not know what happened before the Big Bang. I cannot definitively tell you there wasn't time. You'll hear time began at the Big Bang. Well, that might be true, but it's not necessarily true either. We don't understand it, and we don't understand it well at all, partially because the whole notion of our physical laws almost certainly break down as you approach the Big Bang. And at that point, when our basic physical laws don't work, it's kind of hard to extrapolate and start making decisions uh, about what happened before that. Hi, hi, Brian. Thank you very much for your talk and presence here tonight. Uh, my question is in regards to if we do discover dark energy or dark matter, what impact do you think that would have on our understanding of the standard model? And do you think perhaps the discovery of dark matter or dark energy could help us find the graviton? Okay, so uh, the answer is figuring out what dark energy or dark matter is will create a whole bunch of new, um, new physics that's going to have to be explored. So it is very difficult to, to know exactly where that will lead. It may well, for example, so the, the standard model right now of particle physics uh, as I said, doesn't tell you why uh, neutrinos have mass. That would be kind of nice, and maybe that'll change everything. It doesn't tell you about the existence of dark matter. So you suddenly find it, we're going to have to work on the standard model of particle physics. The theorists will suddenly have something to really sink their teeth into uh, because there'll be something to explain. Dark energy, the hope would be that maybe it is some quantum gravity effect but it might not be. The problem is it's very difficult to get a handle on it. Uh, if you want to figure out what the graviton is, the cosmic microwave background actually provides potentially a much easier way to do it by looking at gravitational waves left over from the Big Bang or the inflationary epoch. And that is a way it turns out to test uh, gravitational theory at those very, very high energies where you might understand something about the graviton. So again, it will be very exciting. There will be a huge change to physics as we know it, but I can't tell you in advance what it would be. Um, so I kind of wanted to riff off the question you were asked seven years ago. Um, 
uh, and uh, about what made you know that you wanted to be a scientist. Um, at the moment, it seems like if you stand in line to be a scientist, you're looking down the barrel of a PhD and postdocs and jumping around the world and that sort of thing. Did that daunt you at all, or did that put you off at all? Uh, so the answer is no. I uh, came, you know, I grew up in the middle of a, a rural part of the United States. It turns out I have someone else from my birth town of Missoula, Montana here, and there aren't many of us. There were been 13,000 people or something when we were both there. So uh, the fact we have two people in the room is unusual. So, you know, there is this myth that the way your career works is I'm going to decide to be an astronomer and I'm going to spend my entire life trying to be an astronomer and if I'm not an astronomer, I'm a failure. Okay? So you're correct. If that is your view of what your life trajectory looks like, uh, then uh, it's pretty daunting. What is life really? In my case, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I decided to do astronomy because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I figured I would never, ever be an astronomer because do you know how hard it is to be an astronomer? There's only a couple thousand of them in the world. I mean, I'm smart, but I'm not that smart, right? So I went to do astronomy so I could learn physics. I could get trained in math, do a bunch of computer stuff, a bunch of engineering, and I said, those are skills that are going to treat me well in life. And you know what? I was right. What I didn't expect was that I would actually do well enough to go and do a PhD in astronomy. And when I did do my PhD in astronomy, I didn't think I would be one of the few people who was able to convert uh, that PhD to a postdoc that allowed me to go out and become a professor. And it's okay because I had a great time. A PhD, if you're doing something you're interested in, is fun. And it's a time to learn about who and what you are and to push yourself and learn a bunch of skills, which, guess what, are useful. I know what my unemployment rate of my PhD students at ANU is, and it's less than 1%, okay? Which is as high as any uh, group of people, any way you want to do it in the world. So getting a PhD is not career limiting unless you make it. It gives you a set of skills you can do a thing. A postdoc, turns out one of the best times of my life was being a postdoc. Yes, I had job uncertainty, and yes, I came this close to having to leave astronomy in 1997 because I hadn't discovered the accelerating universe and I didn't have a job, and my life was such that I wasn't prepared to move my wife, who had a very good job as an economist, around the world anymore. So I was prepared to go do something else. And people said, well, that would have been awful. And I'm like, no, it would have been fine. I had had all this great time, I'd learned all this stuff, and I was going to go on to another job and I would have done it well. So you need to think of life as a series of opportunities, not a prescribed trajectory where anything off that trajectory is a failure. And if you do that, then you will be happy no matter what happens, and I promise you you'll be successful. Um, so we always talk about physics, about all the matter, the, the chair, the sun. We can all feel it or measure it in some way. Everything's physical, it's tangible, um, but there's a lot of talk going on about how everything is made of nothing, um, especially this theory, the mathematical well, hypothesis, mathematical universe hypothesis. Do you have any opinions about that? Is there any merit to it? Well, again, I'm very much of the scientific tradition where anyone can come up with a theory and I want to test it. So I have a philosopher at ANU, David Chalmers, who's now gone back to the United States, who talked about, uh, and if you read Matrix, 
the whole notion that everything that we are is a fiction and we live in a computer simulation. So as a philosopher, you can talk about that, fine. Allow me to test it and measure it. And it turns out he's created tests for you to go out and do that, and they've always come up negative. We're not in a simulation. All right? So you need to be able to go through and test things. That is the empirical science that science is. And it is a philosophy. Science is a philosophy. It is a tool by which we uh, understand and, and interact with our uh, our world and our universe, and the reason it is such a powerful philosophy is because it has allowed us to become very prosperous and manipulate the universe around us and predict things in advance. Uh, and if people want to come up with things that are not testable, fine, that's a different area, it's not science, and I'll let them do that, but I'm personally a big subscriber of science just based on its truth and track record. Hi. Um, when you said that the universe can contract back on itself, did you mean that the distances between the galaxies reduce or the universe actually contracts? So it would be that the distances between galaxies in the future would become, uh, would begin to contract. So that effectively means over time, the distance, uh, the, whole, the whole density of the universe would start to increase. Uh, and yeah, essentially it's, it's unwinding the expansion. Uh, and if the universe has enough uh, gravity, uh, that would be the trajectory of the universe, where you literally would have the size of space expand and then contract at some point in the future. Um, so, but does that mean that the universe still exists after the I have no idea. Once things collapse down to the Big Bang in reverse, in the same way I don't know what happened before the Big Bang, I don't know what happens after the Ganab Gib. Sir, thank you. Another simple question, but one that confuses my mind. Is the red shift that we see in distant galaxies, is that entirely due to the expansion of space or is it partially due to galaxies moving through space? If so, how do we know and how do we account for that in all our computations? Thank you. All right, so it turns out it is uh, a combination uh, of, of uh, the expansion of space plus the motion. Now, it turns out the motion of galaxies is typically very, very uh, small relative to the expansion of space, but it's very confusing. So when I look in the very nearby universe, they can be comparable, and so I can't quite tell what it is, and it looks like noise on the signal. Uh, but even for very um, distant objects, uh, sometimes there can be some ambiguities if there's relativistic jets and things, okay? So that's one aspect. There are some clever ways, for example, of using the cosmic microwave background and remember that every part of the universe sees the cosmic microwave background in all directions. And so there are some clever ways of seeing the motion imposed. Uh, so when you're, when you're moving uh, uh, compared to the cosmic microwave background, there is a Doppler shift that you, you actually is imposed on the cosmic microwave background, where if you're just at rest with uh, the universe, and it's the redshift, there isn't. And that allows you to do some interesting experiments to, in some cases, potentially see the motion of something as opposed to just the redshift. That is a very specific test. Uh, at this point, it's been very hard to do in practice. If objects were moving really, really quick, then you would be able to see it, but they are not. Okay. So you're a regular guest on Q&A. 
Do you enjoy doing that? Is it fun? What was your worst moment? <laughs> My worst moment on Q&A? Um, okay, well, it, it, it's, it's sort of a blood sport Q&A. Um, you kind of show in, you have no idea what's going to go up. They don't give you any clue. Uh, it's, it is kind of like a bungee jump. Uh, so so there, is, there is a certain level of enjoyment on it in the same way that I think a bungee, I don't like bungee jumping, by the way, but I think it has, there's a certain thrill to it. And what I really don't like about it is the two politicians, so the last time I was on it, I want you to think about this thing, uh, I had Barnaby Joyce and Tanya Plibersek, and we were having a great discussion in the back room. Um, and everything was cordial, and we're actually having a sensible conversation. And we go out there, and it's just hammer and tongs, ugly, awful stuff that's impossible to watch. That bothers me. So I find that kind of hard to sit through. I can't, I mean, I struggle to watch the show because of that interaction. So uh, character on the screen. Right, but I'm, I'm telling you, in the back room, we were all having a very sensible conversation. It's just so disappointing to see it descend to that uh, out on stage. Uh, thank you, Brian, for the talk. Um, two quick questions. Um, if general relativity links the contents of space with the geometry of space, and mass, gravitational mass, causes con contraction, so to speak, a curved universe, and even dark energy, which expands space, also flattens it, so to speak, what could possibly give rise to the subtle universe? And the second part is, doesn't the dark energy and expansion of the universe sort of, isn't it like the free lunch argument, free energy, it, it, does it break the conservation of yeah. energy? Okay, so uh, I'm going to start with the second one first. So we have an accounting system in general relativity of how energy is conserved. It turns out energy conservation per se isn't exactly how you think about it. But uh, if you do physics, and I'm sorry for people who don't do physics, but uh, dark energy we think of as having negative pressure. And when you do, for example, you take a piston, you do what we call PDV work, pressure times change in volume. You have a negative pressure times change that's negative offsetting the positive side of it. So the accountancy sort of works in that way, uh, if that makes sense. So it's not a free lunch, it's conservation, uh, and th the pluses and minuses are just different than your intuition is, okay? So, that's one. Because, you know, the universe is accelerating and that, that is something else as well. But don't think they're the same song. And then in terms of uh, the first one, um, it turns out that uh, the universe didn't have to have dark energy. Uh, and if the universe was born light at the time of the Big Bang, it will have a saddle-like shape then. And that satellite shape, that, that saddle, S-A-D-D-L-E, like shape, will persist through the entirety of the universe, except for if the universe decides to accelerate, okay, uh, it, that, that tends to flatten the universe out over time, and in the fullness of time, it becomes flat, okay, but it takes an infinite time, essentially, to do so. Uh, so if the universe is born that way, you know, it can be born that way, uh, it will end up that way. Um, uh, hi. Um, my, my question is, um, from a relative measurement perspective, could the expansion of the universe be explained by our contraction? Um, 
could it be that we're in fact getting smaller, our, our measurement systems, our frame of reference is getting smaller and the universe itself may in fact be the same. So relative to us, it looks like it's expanding, but in fact it may not be changing. In fact, we're becoming smaller. Okay, okay. so you can do that conceptually for us, but that means we're a special place in the universe. You cannot conceptually make it every other place uh, sees exactly the same thing because that starts to conflict with each other. So the answer is, yes, if you believe we're a very special place, unlike anywhere else, that's fine, except for all the uh, physical laws I've just told you and the ability to predict the cosmic microwave background, that all goes away. But just at the very essence of it, you can't do it and have it be every part of the universe see the same thing. We would have to be the only place in the universe that has that. And indeed, one of the postulates in our discovery of the accelerating universe was that we lived in a void and that the acceleration was a myth. It was just we lived in a hole, basically a donut hole in the middle of the universe. We just had to be, uh, it had to be exactly perfectly symmetric in all directions. Uh, so you can do that. It's just not very appealing using what we call Occam's razor. It's a very complicated solution that's probably a little fine-tuned. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.